0: The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org.
1: So good morning, everyone. Uh, Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, going all the way through Ecclesiastes 11, verse 6. So if you're using the Bible in the pew back in front of you, it's on page 523. And if you don't own a Bible of your own, we invite you to take that Bible with you as a gift from Park Church, or we also have some on the back table, uh, on the back that you can grab on your way out. So Ecclesiastes, beginning at chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest." There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness." Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days— Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child— so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jared.
0: Good morning. morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the elders here at Park Church. It's a joy to... Be with you today. I always assume that the 11 a.m. is filled with people who have like robust social lives and like did something cool last night. So uh, I'm glad that you could share your coolness with us. <laughs> uh, us 9 a.m.ers are like in bed by 8. So hi, welcome. Um, we are diving into a, a passage in Ecclesiastes this morning that I'm just going to be upfront about. It's weird because. It sometimes doesn't make sense. Like the very structure itself, um, not to mention the like rapid fire bullet points, kind of proverbial words of the wise, um, don't really connect together in a bunch of like cohesive ways. Um, So I hope that we will get something today out of this as we uh, explore. I'm just kidding. Um, I I do believe that the Lord will work in our hearts, and I'd love for us to go to prayer together that he would indeed do that. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy and grace that's new every morning. We thank you for the ways that you reveal your heart to us in your word, that you reveal to us a way that is, that is righteous and true and good and beautiful in the midst of a world that's chaotic and confusing and often discouraging. And so, Lord, would you ignite our hearts to see you for who you are, to see truth and beauty and wisdom for what it is, and that we would desire that genuinely with our hearts, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and uh, throughout Ecclesiastes and leading up to this point specifically, we've looked at this common thread and theme throughout the book that really is captured in the word hevel that we see pop up throughout each chapter. The word hevel describes the, the way that the world is, the way that life is, the, the reality that we all live, are born, we're born, we live, life is hard, it's a struggle, but it's quick, and you die. Amen. Amen. And that, that hevel, that idea that life is fleeting, like a mist of your breath in the morning on a cold day. You see it, and then and as soon as you see it, it's gone. And that to grasp life that is so quickly fleeting is a futile, futile attempt. And so, although we've been so encouraged in this series by the fact that you you're born, you live, you die, Amen. Um, we're going to actually turn to some maybe some more practical ways that we can engage in that difficulty that struggle, that fleeting life that's just true in the reality on earth. I want to talk to you about the main point that we're going to look at today and we're going to return to this quite often. The main point of this is even though life is heavily, even though life is fleeting and difficult and, and to, to chase after it and to harness it feels like grasping at the wind, wisdom is still a worthy pursuit. That even though it seems like this meaningless, kind of fleeting reality of the world, that there's still a way to show up that makes sense and matters, that it's not a nihilistic reality that we have to subject ourselves to and say, well, since it's all Hevel, might as well just do what I can to get through it. Indeed, there is a better way, and that way is the way of wisdom. We're going to see Kohelet, who's been the one putting together these thoughts from from wisdom and from the reality of life. He's going to turn the conversation in this point in Ecclesiastes to examine the approaches of life in Hevel, and he employs a series of proverbs in order to do so. So as we read today, it's going to feel a lot like we're reading the book of Proverbs, even though we're in Ecclesiastes, and he's doing this so that he can make that point that Hevel though reality in our world, wisdom is still worth pursuing. I love what Tim Mackey from the Bible Project uh, says in describing what a proverb is. He says, a proverb isn't merely human wisdom. It's divine wisdom. Or to be more precise, through human wisdom, God's own wisdom is revealed. And so as we look at the genre of Proverbs and even what we see here in Ecclesiastes that Kohelet is explaining to us, we see this generalized human experience where throughout the ages and people who have gained wisdom can broadly look at the world and say, this is a generalized broad truth and that general broad truth in turn reveals the truth and the wisdom of God. It's not necessarily a ground-up theology, but what happens is because our God is orderly and wise in the way that he created the world, that through that created world that we live in, we can see the general ways that the the world works, like the sun rises and the sun sets. That's a general truth I think we could all agree on. And so we can say, hey, in light of the sun rising and setting, we can say that the sun rises and sets on the good and the evil. And that's just like a general wisdom. And that's revealing the wisdom of God. And so as we look at this passage, I'm going to warn you, it's going to feel like these like disconnected bullet points where Kohelet is, is saying, hey, here's wisdom and here's folly. And he's going to primarily be interested in contrasting the way of the wise versus the way of the fool. And it's broken up into about seven sections or so. I'm going to ask you to stick with me because in the end, I promise that there's going to be something relevant for our lives today. Let's first turn to chapter 10, verse 1, as we read these proverbs of folly and wisdom. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly weighs out, outweighs wisdom and honor. Uh, when I read this for the first time, I thought I was reading an Alanis Morissette um, lyric from the song Ironic, you know, there's a black fly in my Chardonnay, a little dead fly makes the perfumer's ointment stink. Okay. Great. Um, Essentially, what he's saying and what he's setting up is this idea that we've got that that a little bit of, of foolishness can outweigh a ton of wisdom. And we see this in our world in a bunch of different places. He further breaks down what is happening in the wise man's heart and the foolish man's heart and how what happens in their heart and the direction that their heart is aimed at actually works its way out into the real world in their actions and in consequences. Look at it in verse 2. A wise, man heart, wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Like, it's so apparent the way that he's living, because his heart is set in the direction of folly, that like, by simple observance, you can say, that person's really foolish. Now, these are broad generalizations, I'm not trying to call out anyone or any kind of person, but what he's saying is that broadly, those who are set on folly and away from the designed path that God has set out, which we call wisdom, it's obvious to those in the world when somebody is acting in foolishness. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness. will lay a great offense to rest. He next turns to, this, uh, to a, an idea, even though he's saying in that first section, there's wisdom and there's folly, and it's apparent which one is which. He's going to turn the corner and flip that idea on its head and say, actually, another truth about folly and wisdom, it's not predictable. And you're like, doesn't that contradict what you just said? And he says... Let's go on. Here we go. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. There's a disorienting reality in which the cultural assumptions of who is wise and who is foolish or who is rich and who is poor and how that is associated with wisdom or folly actually gets turned on its head at times. Culturally speaking, when this was written, there was a sense that people believed if you are rich or in a position of authority, power, prestige, or honor, that wisdom was associated with that. And on the flip side, for those who are desolate, poor, broken, cast out in society, that, that that must mean that they're in the way of folly, that they're the fool. And it's not hard for us to imagine that rulers or people in high places are foolish. I think our entire political system exposes that on any side of the aisle. It's not hard for us in today's world to say, of course, there are foolish people who have lots of influence in this world. But that's challenging a cultural assumption of the day that this was written. However, for us, like, where do we assume that people of influence or prestige or power are the wise ones? Maybe we look at social media and we see that that people are projecting an image that looks clean and tidied up, and we actually, like, start to believe that. Like, oh, wow, they've really figured out how to retire by 25, they must be wise. <laughs> Read every single uh, person that's suggested in my social media feed. It's fascinating to me that like, our retirement age seems to have gone completely down in this country to like an average age of like 30 because there's so many wise young people investing and becoming millionaires overnight. Did you know that you could actually rent a uh, private jet for a photo shoot these days? they're definitely not wise if they're spending money to rent a a jet for a photo shoot. But we see this in our world where we can start to believe what images are out there and what even foolish people are projecting. In the same way, we know that in, in the Christian worldview that the cross is foolishness to the world but is wisdom to those who believe. And so we cannot bank our assumptions of who is wise and who is foolish simply on optics or what is projected or put out there. And that's essentially what he's saying in this section. He then moves on to uh, something that's, that's got a lot of comedy packed in it. Um, we may not see it at first glance, but he's going to talk about the simplicity of the way that the world works, that there's just a simple way that the world works. And uh, if you examine what the fool is like in the general world... Um, it's actually pretty comical and evident. Look at me in in verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Stick with me here. I promise it'll make sense. He who queries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. All in all, he's saying... The fool can oftentimes, in the simplest of tasks, just by the way of approaching it without a general sense of wisdom, by the way that the world works, like sharpen your axe before you chop wood, he's not going to succeed. And in contrast, for the wise man, though a task and work may be difficult and challenging, and even if it does not yield the results, there's still a goodness to engaging in the world with wisdom. You see, he, he's exposing general rules and truths in contrast, but he's also not guaranteeing that, hey, if you're wise, life's gonna be great. Because we have to remember, and I wanna draw you back to the main point, that wisdom is worth pursuing, but remember it's still within the context of heaven. It's disappointing, it's not predictable, it's disorienting, and it's not guaranteed that success will come simply by operating in wisdom. He goes on throughout the rest of the passage to talk a little bit more about the fool. Um, In 12 through 15, he's talking about how a fool just talks and talks and talks and talks. Um, He says, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth are foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. He multiplies words in contrast to knowing that we don't even know what's coming next. Have you ever experienced that? Somebody who you maybe ask them a question and you're, you're, you got a sense that they don't necessarily know the answer, but they find a way to talk as if they know the answer for a long, long time. And afterwards you're like, huh, okay. The fool multiplies words, but there's wisdom at times in silence. And in listening. We go to verse 16 where um, he takes this idea of foolishness and wisdom and contrasts it in, the, in, the, in positions of like kings and rulers and authorities that have some sort of impact on two different kinds of lands. So he talks about these lands as the beneficiaries of either a wise or a foolish ruler and says this, "'Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning.'" Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the right time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens the heart, and money answers everything. You're like, that is the most godless verse in the Bible. (laughs) I suggest we could replace that with a simple live, laugh, love. And the same point would come across. (laughs) If that's what he was after, it would feel odd. But he's got something else in mind as he says, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens the heart, highlighting the celebratory nature of these two elements, often in feasts and parties. And then he says, money answers everything. As a response to the previous passage, the previous verse where The slothful fool lets a hole go in his roof, but if he simply used his money to fix that instead of the drunken feasts that he had prior to even going out to battle, he wouldn't be in the position with a hole in his roof. And so wisdom is exposed in this contrast of two different kinds of rulers and the benefits that come by living in their land in one way or the other. He then finishes out that section just by a cautioning of uh, really a like gossiping life, saying, hey, don't curse the king like in your bedroom or even in silence, because um, what you say travels fast is essentially just a general word of wisdom. And then in our last section, verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, we find these interesting little um, sayings that have to do more with um, risk, the uncertainty of life, and the, and the call to still invest Much like Jesus' parable of the talents, still invest in something, though life is heavy. even though the return is not always guaranteed in this life. He says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days, which feels odd, because if I put bread on water, I would assume it's going to be soggy in a few days. He goes on to give a little bit more color and says, give your portion to seven or to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Basically saying like, hey, there's risk involved in life. It's uncertain. And that cast your bread upon the waters is, is is tapping into this idea of like generosity and like how in a general sense, wisdom says that by giving, like there can be returns. But also it's not guaranteed. It's still Hebel. He, he's a proponent of um, of hard work in the sense of, of, he says in verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. Like if you're so obsessed with the weather and try to calculate like, hey, when's the best time to like plant, plant my crop? Like, ooh, there's some clouds over there. Maybe I won't. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys are prone to procrastination like me, but um, it can, we can easily slip into the place where we make decisions based on momentary fleeting feelings or assumptions that may not even be true. What he's saying is that it's clear that those who do not put in the work will not reap the reward, but, he who obs- um, but as you do not know the way that the spirit comes into the bones, of a, a bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you don't know which will prosper, this or that, whether both or or whether they'll be good. So he's saying, like, there's no guarantees. Keep in mind, it's still Hevel. It's still all fleeting. But it's still best to work hard, to practice wisdom, to pursue that. And so though this feels a little disorienting at times when you're like, okay, so how do we make sense of this like chapter and a half that's essentially saying like, hey, we get it. Like nothing's wrong that I said in the beginning of this book. I still stand by that. The world is Hevel and there's no guarantees but there's a better way to live to steward that time in the middle and that's wisdom. Turn to me or turn with me, if you will, uh, back a little bit to Proverbs chapter two. Since we're talking about Proverbs, these, this collection of human wisdom that exposes the wisdom of God, let's see how Proverbs deals with some of these same things of wisdom and foolishness in chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2 talks as a father to a son pleading with him to get wisdom. I'm going to read this whole chapter to you, and what I'd like you to do is listen for some of the things we discussed, some of the images that Kohelet included in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, talking about the way of the righteous, the path, the way that the fool acts, the contrast. Listen as I read. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your, your heart to understanding, yes, If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. "'Delivering you from the way of evil, "'from the men of perverted speech, "'who forsake the paths of uprightness "'to walk in the ways of darkness, "'who rejoice in doing evil "'and delight in the pervasiveness of evil, "'men whose paths are crooked "'and who are devious in their ways. "'So you'll be delivered from the formidable woman, "'from the adulteress with her soothing words, "'who forsakes the companion of her youth "'and forgets her covenant, the covenant of her God, "'for her house sinks down into death.' and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteousness. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. The picture is clear. And it's the same picture that Kohelet is giving us in Ecclesiastes 10. That there's a path of righteousness and wisdom. And the desire for wisdom is something that we ought to embody and get deep into our hearts. And not only that, but that God gives that wisdom to us. And if we seek it, like silver, or like precious treasure, that it leads to, leads to the life that we are all truly meant to live. And in contrast... The way of the fool that despises righteousness, that you sink down and they do not come back from it. And so we see similar themes in the language of wisdom, the call to pursue wisdom, and we see that call to pursue wisdom even stronger in Proverbs chapter 4. Go there with me if if you can. Over to Proverbs chapter 4, we see in verses 4 through 9 this desperate plea that the father has to his son to get wisdom. He says this in chapter four, verse four. Let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. And don't forget. And do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you do, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you, she will honor you, embrace you, she will place on your head a graceful garland, and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Parents in the room, if you you had had like the most important words to give to your children, Would it come from a place like this? It's like, get wisdom. Anything you can do, get It's what's proceeding from the heart of this father to his son. And so it begs the question for us, how do I get wisdom? It feels like that ethereal thing you can throw out there and say, hey, just pursue the wise life, everybody. And you're like, cool, that sounds pretty religious or churchy or I don't know. Like, I guess I got to be old to do that. So how do we pursue wisdom? I want to offer a few ways that we can do that. And none of this is going to feel surprising or new or special or magical. Because if you've been around Park Church a long time, you'll probably notice that a lot of these things that I'll suggest and propose to you that can help us live into the way of wisdom are pretty common things and simple, which is the good news for us. So how can we pursue a life of wisdom? Number one, simply ask. Look at what it says in James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to you. So if you're anything like me, you read passages like the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and he's like, great. This seems like a really important thing that people are pretty passionately committed to. And it seems like the right way to live in the midst of life being heavily and broken. How do I get wisdom? Ask. The promise that God is waiting to generously pour out wisdom into your heart simply by the act of faith of you asking is wild. So, if you want wisdom... And if you lack it, ask. And our generous God will give it to you. Number two, steep yourself in the story of God. We are steeped in a worldview, not because we are pursuing it necessarily, but because it's coming at us with force. And that worldview is the way of the world what Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are calling the way of folly. It's not hard for us to open up our phone every morning or drive to work and see billboards where everybody is vying for our attention and monetizing our desires. It's easy for us to, on autopilot, be steeped in the wisdom and the way of the world. We actually have to fight double time to get wisdom, because we have to fight against and push back the wisdom of the world, which is f- foolishness, to pursue the wisdom of God. And I just want to name the fact that that's not easy. It's not an easy task. To push back the, 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 the noise and the advertising and the philosophies of this world that aren't rooted in the wisdom of God and the way that God designed the world to work. And so we have to push that back and steep ourselves in the reality of the story of God, where I know who I am based on what He says I am. And I know who He is based on who He promises to be and continues to be and always will be. That left on autopilot, living in a city like Denver, I will be swept up into the cultural current and the philosophies of this world if I'm not doing battle daily to steep myself in the reality of scripture and of who God is and who I am and who we are and what the heck we're doing here. So how do we do that? A couple suggestions like commit to just being in scripture. Commit to being in scripture as you saturate your mind in the, in the story of God. Lean on things like the church calendar that we celebrate here at Park Church that really help us rehearse the gospel and the good news. As we're moving into a season of Advent here soon, it's not just pre-Christmas. Um, please wait till after Thanksgiving anyway. But <laughs> it's not just like, I can't wait, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It's not like embodying Buddy the Elf's like, like spirit leading up to Christmas. It's really rehearsing what people in, in, in God, God's people in scripture felt especially as we look at the Old Testament and the the prophets, the minor prophets, a longing for a rescuer, a deliverer, one who will come and destroy evil, set the captives free, make our hearts fully alive to God. Jesus, come to earth. We get to rehearse the story of the gospel through church calendar through your daily Bible reading, through sharing the gospel with others, but also preaching the gospel to yourself. I'm a sinner. I'm in desperate need of a Savior. That the life that I'm meant to live as a human, fully alive to God, I can't do without His help. And so I need Him. And I rehearse that to myself and find myself welcomed with love and grace in the arms of a Father who loves me. So steep yourself in the story of God. How else do you pursue a life of wisdom? Surround yourself with wise counsel. It's amazing how uh, much unwise counsel there is out there, Uh, whether it's how how to spend your money or your finances or your time or what to give your life to, what to free your schedule up in. Um, There's a lot of unwise counsel out there. And so we need biblical community. We need a group of people who are linking arms together, committed to following the way of Jesus. Like, to, to pursue wisdom on your own is a, is a foolish pursuit at times because I can convince my heart that anything's a good idea and I need the people around me to tell me, eh, that's a dumb idea, Josh. And I'm grateful for that and I, I wouldn't be in the place I am today following Jesus if it weren't for those in my life to call me back to, to Christ. We need accountability and truth speaking, so surround yourself with wise counsel. And then finally, how else do we pursue wisdom? A slow down spirituality. A, a Christian life, a commitment to a lifestyle that, that says, I'm not going to run the frenetic pace of the culture. One, because I, 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 will, I will never be able to hear the voice of wisdom, that still small voice, as the Lord speaks to me. And so things like Sabbath, things like silence and solitude, just slowing down simply to be with God, maybe to commit to less, to prioritize. Like the author of Proverbs says, whatever you do, get wisdom. Wisdom doesn't come through a fast food drive through unfortunately. Maybe fortunately, because it's killing us slowly. Wisdom comes through slow meal. It comes through slowing down to be able to learn to hear the voice of God. And speaking of learning, I want to leave you with this image that has just captivated my imagination when it comes to tying this all together. Like, okay, okay, I get it. Like, life is short. Life is disappointing. There's no guarantees. It's disorienting. I'm going to die. But I'm still going to pursue wisdom Because it seems like that's the right way, it can feel overwhelming. And as we learn to pursue wisdom, it's like we're being pulled in different directions. Like, oh, okay, I want to do like my finances like with wisdom. And so, okay, over here, I'm going to go this way with with finances. And then like, oh, but I want to avoid that trap. So I'm like going to step back a little bit here. Um, but then, oh wait, what about when it comes to like my relationships and my friendships? Let's go the wise way right here, and then um, oh, there's some unhealthy things I want to avoid or I don't want to like go down that path, so I step back and you, you find yourself being jerked around a little bit. Which this passage and the cadence of the passage actually you feel it in your bones while you're like reading it. You're like, and this way and that way and this way, and what God gave me was an image that that w- was like a waltz. Raise your hand if you like to dance in here. Raise your hand if you like to dance. Yeah, these are my people. Okay. I'm still recovering from a wedding from a week and a half ago where I pulled some muscles. um, (laughs) Which is not because I was dancing carefully, I'll tell you that. Um, I go all out, and I imagine the people who raise their hands also do. God bless you and for the rest of you. Um, Dancing is awkward at first when you're learning to dance. I mean, I I love to dance. But like when you're learning like something like legit, like uh, if you've ever taken like ballroom dancing and you've, you've tried to learn that waltz dance that's like three quarter time and it's a one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And you're going back and forth, being pulled in different directions that feels disorienting and you're getting dizzy, but you're trying to look down at your feet because you're like, I really stink at dancing and I don't want to step on my partner's feet. And so you're disoriented. I feel like that's what the call to wisdom often feels like. Is hey, I'm committed to this way of life, but figuring it out feels weird, and I'm bad at it. There's grace for that. There's so much grace for that. Because as we step into the waltz of wisdom, we're dancing with Jesus. And as cheesy and corny as that might sound, imagine this. He invites you into the dance of wisdom that might feel disorienting. And you might find yourself being pulled in one direction only to be pulled in another. And you start looking down at your feet because you don't wanna step on Jesus' feet, you know? So it feels a little weird. But the more that you can lift your gaze up to his face and off of your feet, you're doing something beautiful. And that's the invitation for us. It's like Jesus has come to me. The most wise human that ever was and ever will be. The only wise God invites us into a life where he's taking the lead. And we get to experience the beauty of a dance where it feels like you're all over the place. Much like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. You feel like you're just okay, I got these bullet point things, direction over here, direction over there. And life actually starts to look beautiful, even in the midst of heaven. And so may we be a church filled of people who have that invitation to be with Jesus, to follow his way of life, to dance the dance of wisdom with him. And when we step on our feet... Or when we look really dumb doing it, or when we mess up in the pursuit of wisdom, that there's grace and love. Because Jesus is always a better dancer. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, you plead with your children, get wisdom, because you love us. You designed us to live a certain way, God, and there's so many distractions that make us think otherwise. Like, there's so many alluring things out there, so many ideas that, that can get into our hearts and to our minds that cause us to think, this, this Jesus thing just is not worth it. And Lord Jesus, if you even had that thought when going to the cross, we wouldn't be here today standing in your presence with confidence and love. And so give us the mind of Christ. Would you help us get wisdom to practically orient and architect a life that allows space and time and pursuit of the way of wisdom, even when life is disorienting and unpredictable? And so, God, we, we need you. That's our desperate cries. We need you. We need Jesus uh, to be our guide, to be our, to be our lead, to look at us with kindness. And I thank you that you do. Spirit, be with us in our pursuit for wisdom. Uh, may we be a community that does that with each other, um, for each other, and uh, encourages us along the way against the, the grain of this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The communion servers are going to come up And we're going to actually celebrate and rehearse that story of God for ourselves. That as desperate, needy sinners, we have a generous God who gave of himself to reconcile us to himself and to one another. That the body and the blood of Jesus becomes the pathway in which we walk through and embody so that we can experience life to the full and life eternal. And we've been, in the series of Ecclesiastes, reading a prayer together as, before we take communion. And I'm going to invite, for those who are able, if you would stand with me, we'd like to read this together before we head into a time of communion. Would you read this with me? Father in heaven, free us from our exhausting efforts to seek satisfaction under the sun. Help us to trust in your presence and walk in your ways even when we are disoriented by the pains and perplexities of life, increase our passion to live for Jesus, who alone offers lasting joy and unshakable hope. And let our joy and hope in Christ shine like light in the darkness, such that others will be drawn to your saving love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.